Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Fast Company is over. Mm. Mm. You need a quadravane blower installed. <laughs> All right, team, screens, guys, and blue jeans, this is it. The world of the drag racer. Fast cars and fast company. Why didn't you call me a mutt? You're finished. Now we're going to run that car, and you ain't going to stop us. Burning out All right. Well, I've said everything I need to say, Andy. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. Yeah, that was it. This was uh, this was a surprise Cronenberg film. Was it a surprise to you? Well, no. And I guess, I mean, it would have been if I hadn't already learned about how this one was so different. So I guess to that end, it was spoiled. <laughs> So I, I, I went so in going, I, oh, this is going to be the one that feels really different. Yeah. It 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 felt it felt different. <laughs> I had, you know, I feel like emotionally I'd worked myself up to being um to being ready for some Cronenberg horror and to go through the body horror journey and all of that. And then he gives us Fast Company, which is a movie uh about the uh, 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 drag racing uh, sort of, I, I would guess, sort of pro, pro-am drag racing funny car circuit. And it is not, uh, it's out of character. And Cronenberg has some interesting things to say about this movie and how it fits into overall, uh, his overall catalog and contribution, uh, which I, I look forward to talking about. To me, this movie probably was made worse because we're talking about it in this series. And I struggled with it because I kept expecting around every corner to have the underarm uh, rectal proboscis. Uh, and like, I, I just expected to be shocked around every corner that didn't last that long. Uh, but, but it was a surprise that this film was as slow moving as it was. And I think it's, it's an interesting love story that he gets to tell to this thing that obviously he cares very much about. It's tough to make an exciting movie about this. Well, I don't know if I'd agree with you there. I mean, I thought it was fine. I actually enjoyed it for what it was. It's a genre film. It's a car racing movie. It fits. It fits in kind of that B genre that you would expect this type of film to exist in. Does it feel like a Cronenberg film? No. Like if if I went and watched this straight up before I uh, really knew, or if you took all the credits off, if you stripped everything off, like I feel like some of Cronenberg's other films, you can really tell, okay, this is the guy who's going to be doing that again. This film, like, because I, I, and I went into this watching, is there anything in this that actually feels like Cronenberg, other than his clear passion for car racing and that world that he himself has kind of lived in before, uh, before he kind of went into making films? Is there something that has an element of Cronenberg, even if it's just the way that he kind of was putting his shots together? And I don't I don't think I actually felt much of anything Cronenberg in this. And uh, I guess that's the first question that I would put to you is when a filmmaker who has such a particular body of work makes a film like this. And, and you know, I should you know preface this by saying 
David Cronenberg has said it's not so much an anomaly in his in his oeuvre of work, but it's one of his many children. Just like children can be different, this one is still his and represents facets of him. Does it say something to you about a director's body of work when something like this stands out as so completely different from everything else? It's not like a filmmaker who's directing all sorts of different genres. This is like a filmmaker who has a very specific genre and style, and then there's this one. Right, right. And I think that's, you know, I, I don't think we would ever be in a position to say, you know, to, to make any sort of statements on his sort of uh, that, that don't say anything to counter his uh, own statements on this. This is it's fine for, no, for him I, to see this as his children. But I you're I, I think that the things that are interesting to me to answer that question um, are the stylistic bits, the way he compresses time through editing, the way he handles action sequences that happen very, very quickly, that I think you can get away with a lot more in a horror picture than you can in a film like this. Because in a horror film, we have a skewed sense of time anyway, right? We have an internalized understanding that when the uh, victim is running through a field and someone is chasing the victim and they they're only walking, it's okay that the, they're going to catch up because time works differently in a horror movie. It's okay. Like, we can let a lot go. I had some enormous trouble in this movie, the way uh, uh, action sequences were handled, the way explosions were handled, the final sort of climactic race uh, were very Cronenbergian cuts. Like, it felt like he was moving through time in a way that in this movie, where in this world, where I have a much better sense of how time works, uh, it doesn't work. It violates rules that I've already internalized and can't let go of. And so it makes the ending wholly unbelievable to me and uh, sucks a lot of the the energy out of it. Um, so that that's one area where I think this does feel like Cronenberg. And it, as a result of what I know of Cronenberg, uh, it doesn't work as effectively. That's interesting. I, I guess for me, I, I didn't have any particular sense of kind of that storytelling style that he used in the climax there that made it not work because it was it was in a different genre because again i think i found i connected this more to kind of just this a genre picture of car racing movies whereas i think you kind of placed it more in like kind of a real world setting which i mean to a certain extent it is but uh, you know i just i just kind of gravitated more to just kind of that gritty b genre car movie um and so i didn't have any issues with that sort of thing and to that end uh, I think maybe I found that it worked better largely just because I think he just he went from one genre to another genre and was OK changing conventions. And he acknowledged like right out of the gate with this film, I'm doing this in a totally different genre. Look, listen, I've got a pop song playing and we're just cutting to beauty shots of, of cars and trucks driving and all this sort of stuff. It felt so much like him saying. This is a different genre that I haven't worked in before, but it's a fun genre, and I'm just going to throw everything at it the way that I've seen it done in this genre, and I'm not worrying about it so much. And I, I felt like I, I felt like him relaxed a little more in a way where he was just saying, yeah, I'm going to play in a different sandbox with these different toys, but I still, you know, I still know how to kind of roughly tell a story and get that through, and so he, he did. But I, I guess... To me, it didn't feel 
anything like I, I just didn't spot anything that just said this is definitely Cronenberg other than the way that he I, I think really loves to show the details of the kind of the the I guess I would say the technology in the other yeah. films it's the technology as horror and kind of how things are happening in this particular case it's technology in the form of these cars like he gets some really incredible shots of I mean he gets shots of engines and things working and stuff like that but he gets like these great camera mount shots of these cars at a point in time where I don't think a lot of that was being done and to me that kind of work did feel very Cronenberg uh, well, and I, I agree with you there. And I would even say to the point of, you know, the engines and stuff, the the way he shoots engines, the way he shoots us taking parts off and putting parts back in and and, uh, you know, the way we live in this world of the of the sort of pro am part right of of racing where we see the contrast between the giant tractor trailer that is sponsored by Fast Company, the the oil company and, you know, the second, third, fourth tier to the to the all straight amateur drag racing, you know, uh, that we get to see, you know, what whatever you brought to the track, you can race it, come sign up, <laughs> right? That that kind of feel. Um, I thought that was exhilarating. There is a, a sequence at the end where we get all the drag racers. It's this montage of happy drag racing, you know, that just goes on and on and on. But as the sun goes down, it really changes the way the, you know, flames coming out of the tailpipes. I mean, it's just, it, there's some really interesting stuff there. And that, I, I agree with you, um, is effectively Cronenberg to to me. The the challenge I have about this as a car as a racing movie is that to me much of the exhilaration of the best racing movies that you know that I I really love are about a kind of racing that gives you more racing in the racing, right? In this movie the racing is over in six seconds, right? <laughs> to the point where they actually have to superimpose a timer in one of the interior car shots, which I actually really liked. I think that was that was effective in terms of giving us a sense of place and time where from the green light, we had the clock start kind of overlaid on top of the interior kind of driver's POV and it's over in six seconds. And it is an incredibly fast and sort of exhilarating way to say, hey, you're in a, a dragster right now and it's going to be great but i think mechanically because these races are so short i never got a sense of the emotional drama of the race right i never got a sense of the the narrative arc of a race itself of two like the mono a mano on the track uh really going at it turn one turn two turn 500 uh I, I never got any of that out of this movie and and so in that regard i think it's the wrong kind of racing to have to to film and and to to treat cinematically um for me i just didn't i didn't connect with it so you're not a fan of bull riding movies either, then? <laughs> I'm largely not a fan. There's a, of there's the, a whole uh, movie called Six Seconds. That's all. Yeah, about no, I know. Bull ride. That's right. Uh, That's right. I um I I I I can definitely see your point. I don't think I end up agreeing with you just because, and I and I agree. Like the longer car races, like the actual like uh sports cars like when you have those races that last lap after lap after lap after lap after lap 
there's say, there, say what you will about <laughs> Days of Thunder. Like that is no, the, mean, like yeah. those are race. That's a race car movie. There's you know? definitely something about that. Now these are totally different kinds of cars. You know these dragsters and these funny cars. It's a totally different type of race. That's a little different class almost. And I, I personally, I, I think you're, I think it is literally a different class. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I actually ended up kind of really liking it and kind of connecting with this world that I had, don't think I've ever seen kind of depicted in film before. The fact that these cars are designed to race really well, but pretty much only for about like that six second window of time, I find really interesting. And I don't know, I, I connected with these characters. I mean, it's not a great story. It's pretty standard stuff. And when I say I connect with these characters, I like it. It's all in kind of that B movie, you know, it 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 kind of passes by and by the time it's over, you know, I don't think that I have much connection to it really. But at the time when I'm watching it, I'm like, you know, it's it's interesting. I like these characters. I like this world. But it's I mean, it's nothing it's nothing that is huge. And to that end, I think it really does end up falling to the characters and how much are we going to be able to connect with the characters in the story because that is going to be the thing that really makes a story like this work. And like you said, you brought up Days of Thunder. I would argue that we can connect with those characters better because they're as Hollywood as that story may be we may be able to connect with those characters a little more than perhaps we do in this particular film. I think that's accurate. I, too, I did some searching. I, you know, I'm certainly not an exhaustive search, but I'll tell you, it's hard to find racing movies that focus on this class of racing in my limited experience here. I've got Drag Strip Girl, 1957. Um, I've got uh, 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 Funny Car Summer, 1974. Uh, but mostly when you're on the track, you get a chance to go around the track and yeah. you, you get a chance to build a connection with the competition. And in this movie, for me, this movie was void of that competition. I want to ask you related to that about our supposed antagonist here. Uh, now, generally in these movies, the antagonist is set up as the guy that you're racing against. This movie is a little bit of a pivot on that. Gary, the guy we're racing against, is in the middle of a, a much more, I think, complex web of uh, intrigue and malfeasance and sabotage uh, than being the direct sort of mano a mano racing foil. And he ends up playing, I think, a really interesting role ultimately in the end. The real bad guy is Fast Company the and the representative, the track representative, I, I would say, right? Yeah, less the company, more specifically the representative uh, mm -hmm. as depicted by John Saxon. Who is, I, I think he's generally a great uh, bad guy. I, you know, I think he's great, period. I just, I think John Saxon has been great in such a wide variety of movies, whether he is a more villainous character um, or he's kind of a more straightforward, you know, kind yeah. of just a character like in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. I think he's yeah, uh, right, just fantastic right. in those ones. But I think he's definitely one of those actors who has done a pretty good variety of, of good and bad. And I, I generally, enjoy him in films that I see. And here, as the bad guy, I mean, I think that you could say he's definitely drinking it up and does a great job of of playing it. And you're right, he's not the other racer. But I think that that's an interesting element of the story, the way that that plays out 
and who ends up being kind of the bad guys in the film. Because certainly John Saxon is one of the bad guys. Also, uh, Gary Black, you know, his he he's on, I guess you could say, the bad guys team. He's the main guy. But then we also have Meatball and Stoner, and who are kind of his, you know, uh, I don't know what you call those guys, but just kind of the like his crew, the, his crew. Right. And Meatball is the one who really ends up kind of becoming the minion of uh, Adamson, John Saxon's character, and the one who kind of uh, ends up kind of performing some more of the nefarious deeds in the film. Right. As as Saxon's character starts to sort of turn the table on uh, our our you know protagonist racing team uh lucky man um you know we get an uh, it's kind of an interesting twist that we we realize that the team is out to you know put this legendary racer out to pasture and replace him with somebody who's much more of a, a company man and you know can we find that in gary and uh the you know saxon doesn't go directly really to gary gary is you know what he starts out as kind of a sympathetic competitor and he becomes a foil um you know he's given ultimately the big truck he's given the um you know all the trappings of success while saxon and and the you know meatloaf are out there trying to to turn the tables on these two teams and meatloaf 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 is Different personality. <laughs> All of the meats, man. Would you tell me, just stop for a minute. Would you have been surprised one bit if Meatloaf had shown up in this movie? I, I beg to say, you surprised. would not have been surprised. No, I, would. I would love to see Meatloaf playing Meatball. That actually, that would have been great. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. I don't even remember what I was talking about. Yeah, well, no, it's a, it's an interesting world that is set up here the fact that that gary is kind of that guy and i it's there are elements that i really do enjoy about this and i and i i haven't been able to kind of put my finger on this if it feels really cronenbergian because i know that he was one of a few writers on this particular project which is the first time that he's kind of been in that situation where he's kind of helping write a script that other people have come up with um in this particular case it's still kind of this corporate entity that ends up being the the antagonist of the story. And to that end, is that kind of a Cronenbergian element where it's kind of this bigger, this bigger uh, entity that is kind of um, bad? I, I don't yeah, know I, if I could say that it is completely Cronenbergian, but I feel like it's something that he's played with a little bit. Well, couldn't you make the same case that the big company is represented by the Starliner and what they've come up with in as this kind of megalopolis of of self-contained living in Shivers? Couldn't you say the same thing about the self-contained uh, giant sort of company backed uh, hospital? conglomerate in in the last movie i mean i, I think I you could make that case that I, well that's you know. what i was thinking that we could but i don't feel like the doctor who's coming up with the plan and shivers is any way related to the actual company that is uh, behind starliner um in shivers likewise i don't think it's really this huge you know medical uh megalopolis that is running uh the the colloidal institute whatever it is in uh in um the in the second one rabbit rabbit 
Yeah. So I, 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 but well, I, feel I, like and I don't think we can there, be yeah. too liberal or too literal about that, because I, I do think that there is a there's a sort of culture that he's commenting on here. Yeah. And in, in this movie, kind of big company, big oil is the starliner of this movie. Right. I mean, it's it it's the it's the thing that is is so big and so powerful that it demands you change your behavior to suit it. And in this case, it might be, you know, as, you know, superficial as uh, changing teams around the racetrack and changing logos on a car. Or it could be the weirdly gratuitous uh, motor oil covered naked body sex scene uh that uh you know that where they actually are using the company's product as a as a literal lubricant <laughs> <laughs> right and and i think that's a i think that's an interesting um an interesting statement right in terms of that that cronenberg is a, a really uniquely positioned to make largely because of the kinds of movies he'd made before this one yeah and to that end i think there is an element that does speak to kind of his type of storytelling yeah Another element that I think is interesting in kind of coming up with this story is the the all the writers in Cronenberg really went into this wanting to make a Western in the car world. And so kind of you've got the whole, you know, the black hat and the white hat, like in the old Westerns. Here it's a black team and a white team. Um, Billy the Kid is a character here. Uh, it's It's an interesting idea to kind of give this sense of this this westerns and kind of the the clear-cut black and white nature of a story in this thing um but does it come through for you and is that something you even thought about i don't know if it if i thought about it at all until i heard cronenberg talking about it and in the end yeah. does it does it end up mattering well i don't know i mean i i end up looking at this and and thinking okay what are the westerns that he might have been watching right are we talking about the the no name trilogy no, right? are we I, I would think that it's more just about? the straight up um, good guy, bad guy, you know, the black hat, the white hat, just kind of the mm -hmm. clean cut early John Wayne sorts of Westerns before he was doing things like the searchers. OK. All right. I uh, I guess uh, it, it did not come uh, across that well, uh, that clearly for me, not until after the movie. And I started trying to place you know, uh, place those labels on this movie. It was for me, it was a race car genre picture. And and that's about as far as I got. I mean, have you been able to make more sense of it? No, I mean, I, I get it. I, I see that they did it after I read about it. It's like, OK, sure. Billy the Kid, mm -hmm. that's an obvious name and a nod. He's wearing a cowboy hat. You've got kind of these these good guys, the bad guys, the, you know, the 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 bad sheriff and stuff like that. I, I see these elements there. I You're think finished it, in this town. Yeah, I think it's interesting to kind of use that as a model when they're putting the story forward. But largely in the end, um, it is just a, a genre picture like a Western film is. And to that end, I think it didn't bring a whole lot of new ideas to it because it's just it's, it really ends up just being another genre picture. Right. I mean, it didn't scream to me Western slap me in the face Western like, you know, serenity. Right, a Western, literally a Western in space. Uh, it didn't didn't feel like it was going. It was leaning that heavily into it. But we do get a steal the horse sequence, uh, which is in this movie where they have to, they have a car, they just have to go find it, and they go find it, and they break the horse out of the barn sequence. And <laughs> you know, 
what the, as I watched it, it was cheeky, and I I was not a fan. But as we talk about it, maybe uh, maybe it was cheeky in all the right ways. Yeah, for me, it works. I mean, again, it's all part of the genre picture, and that speaks to kind of again this nature of a genre picture where I feel like they could have put more into the writing to really kind of boost it up a little bit because the ending really starts feeling like stuff is happening that just doesn't make sense anymore. But I'm like, you know, but in the world of the genre that they're playing in, it fits okay, I'll give it to them. And so I end up kind of shrugging my shoulders and and, and blowing it off because I'm like, okay, so they steal the car back. In reality, I like I completely don't buy it because if he has gone and stolen the car, I can't imagine that he would be able to race in a stolen vehicle. I feel like that's a perfect time for fast company to sweep in and say, hey, this is stolen. You're not only not racing in this, but you're under arrest. You know, I mean, there's there's things yeah, like that that don't make any sense. Yeah, the bandit. Yeah, I'm you like, know? I, like, yeah, it's just illogical at that point. It is. It, it goes and and for me, I was already pretty bored, and then it became illogical, and that makes it not an an enjoyable way to wrap up this movie. How did they not see meatloaf at the far end of the track <laughs> or meatball, pouring, whoever it is, or meatball? <laughs> I did it again. Uh. What are you going to do? How did they not see uh, Meat Lover's pizza down at the far end putting the flammable material on the track? How did was he able to cut off Billy in that in the other car and Billy able to stop so quickly after the car immediately in front of him explodes? Like there's nothing logical about that sequence in time and space. And um, and so it, it just, it completely falls apart. It goes from grounded genre picture to completely unrealistic nonsense. Yeah, and I would argue that because of the nature of the genre that it's in, it ends up being, you know, I shrug my shoulders and go, okay, it, it fits with what they're doing in the genre. But see, but see, Andy, I, that's where we, we definitely disagree on that point, because the the genre, like, like we're going to call it, what what are we calling it as a, a genre picture, right? I mean, well, it's this, not a fantasy. It's a grounded race car movie not, it, with human physics. Yes, yes. But... It also came out in this period in the 70s and 80s that was this whole car exploitation thing of exploitation car movies that were just like these these crazy car you know race movies and all sorts of crazy nonsense happening and you know I I think things happen in these movies that are beyond belief to a certain extent and and I I feel like you're putting a lot of emphasis on the fact that just because we're in the real world of car racing that everything that's going to happen in it all of a sudden needs to be realistic and I just I feel like it came out in this period of time where you're not getting that out of other car racing movies that are coming out like I think it would have been an anomaly if it did act more naturally in the period of the 70s when all these other car exploitation movies were coming out you're absolutely right. And I will give you all of that if you introduce some more car exploitation in Acts 1 and 2 of this movie. Like, they set up a movie that was more grounded than the other crazy bonkers car movies. Like, he introduced wackadoo car stuff in the last 10 minutes of the movie. And by then, it's too late. By then, it's not. He hasn't given me the movie. Like, he's changing up the rules of the movie that he gave me. And that, I think, is the sin of this movie. <laughs> Okay. I think you're you're being a little hard on the genre 
period. But hey, it's, you know, to each his own. Genre of what? Wackadoo car exploitation movies? Yeah. This is not one of those movies. It totally is. This is is a movie that's going to be a grounded car movie, a racing movie, and it's going to (laughs) show me these relationships between men and women, and it's going to show me this big company stuff. And then in the last few minutes, it's going to show me nonsense physics. Like, fine, if you're going to give me that kind of movie, but like you, you got to set those rules up earlier. I, I totally get where you're coming from. I can see those points. I guess I, I just, can make the points again, Andy, if you need me to. I am sure you can. I could, I'm <laughs> sure we could fill the rest of this show with you making the points and me not worrying about them. But that's fine. It's I I don't have an issue because for me, I I just see what's happening. And you know what? It's in like so many movies where you get to the climax and something happens that hasn't happened before because it's the climax of the movie. And of course, they're going to change things up in order to actually make a climax. So you're experiencing something different and bigger and beyond what you've seen in the rest of the film. So I end up having no problem with it because in context of just this world of these car movies, sure, another car raced ahead of the other car. I'm really not too worried about it because it's a, it's a B car racing movie. I'm very flummoxed by this uh, because I know you're you're you are intentionally not nitpicking at your normal standard. It's because it's, I think it's, it's, I feel a, like the way a, I do. It's an exploitation this B is, movie. Like why this is, nitpick on a movie this like is this? Exploitation podcasting is what this is. And right here, two thumbs I can, looks like this I guy. I can nitpick my my the rest of the show away but it's like what's the point this is not the type of film you nitpick this is the type of film that they made for a certain audience the certain audience enjoyed it and you know what i can enjoy it and not worry about it all right it doesn't mean that i'm gonna all of a sudden call it a five-star film far be it from that i I fully expect it to be a (laughs) five-star film with quibbles of course it's a five-star film with quibbles Uh, moving on how do we even go on from there Uh, that's a good question (laughs) can we talk should we even start talking a little bit about some of your favorite cast performances sure we can kind of run through a few of the a few key cast members who do you want to start with should we i I feel like we need to start with lonnie Lonnie that's what I was going to say. William Smith playing uh, Lucky Man, Lonnie Lucky Man Johnson. So he is to, he's the stoic, right? He's the rock of of this of the racing. thing. he's the guy who survives all the nonsense explosions and lives to tell the tale. Got a stable relationship in Seattle. As far as we know, we don't see any other, you know, womanizing on his part. He's a good guy, right? Uh, yes, which is rare for him as an actor. He largely played bad guys. That was kind of uh, his bread and butter. He, I think, enjoyed that perhaps a little more than playing good guys. And it was a little bit of a change for him to kind of do a good guy role. And I thought he did a great job in kind of uh, the good guy role for this film. I, I kind of enjoyed his just the kind of the world of all of that. I thought he was fine. What'd you think? I did. I know I, I did, too. I mean, I think for, for what the movie was, for this grounded uh, cinematic exploration of drag racing that obeys all the rules, I think he did great. Uh, and uh, I, I was interested in his in the texture of his character, kind of the way he played it. I could actually feel a subdued sort of Clint Eastwood in his performance. So that that, I guess, is an easy uh, way for me to make that connection back to, you know, the the um, Leone westerns it just felt gritty like that speaking of eastwood he 
was in any which way you can with these toys. That's right. That's right. I don't feel like I've seen much of his other films. Um, a lot of the stuff he's uh, in are just not the movies that I'm generally seeking out to look at. Um, but I did see he was Conan's father in Conan the Barbarian just a few years later. Yeah. He was also in The Outsiders and Rumblefish and Red Dawn. Red Dawn, yeah. yeah. And so. uh, outside of that, I think probably 94 is the last time I watched something with him. And he was a bit part in Maverick. So I don't, uh, yeah. I have not seen much of him. I missed Manosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> Sad to say. <laughs> oh, me too. Oh, uh, yes. He did. He won the 200-pound arm wrestling championship of the world multiple times, according to Wikipedia, and also won the U.S. Air Force weightlifting championship. He was a he was a big dude. He was stacked. You know, you can get that sense here. He's definitely yeah. big. Like when he's, I think when he's like kind of in his wife beater shirt, and he's, uh, I think that's when he actually decks Adamson and knocks him out of his uh, trailer. Yeah. Um, Which is a fall. Uh, kudos to that stunt performer because that was that was a knock hitting the pavement like that that was a good one yeah yeah uh okay so um we've already talked a little bit about john saxon do you have anything else to say about him no just i thought he was great here uh nicholas campbell Uh, is uh, i guess the next one we should talk about billy the kid um he kind of fits i i think again a lot of these sorts of guys are guys who fit in yeah this world and for me like he seemed like a young racer kind of this a little cockier um you know just a little um uh, you know more sure of himself but didn't necessarily have the experience i kind of like that about him i did too i thought he was uh I-, I thought he was fine he reminded me there's so much of this uh, like these movies or this movie, I should say, that took me back to uh, other like more slapsticky comedies. In this case, he reminded me so much of Billy from Caddyshack. For some reason, I was that's I, actually pretty I, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just felt like that was that was this character, you know, uh, ahoy, Paloy, you know, as he shows up in his fancy unified <laughs> fire suit. Um, there was that, and then the heist sequence just re- reminded me so much of stealing the Winnebago in Stripes. Like there, there is a vibe to these movies that we're in any other context. Put the right music to it, and I could have that. I could have seen, been seeing those movies. Felt the most to me like a, a an element of this story that Cronenberg really pulled from his time spent with Ivan Reitman on the last yeah. two films. And stuff like that actually surprised me that Ivan Reitman was not on board this one as one of the producers because it felt so much like something that Ivan Reitman would use in so many of the movies that he was involved in. Yeah, yeah. Homage. Um, the the uh, We had uh, Claudia Jennings as Sammy and uh, Judy Foster as Candy. I actually felt like in context of what sort of movie this is, there's at least an interesting element to both of these two characters. And I actually felt yeah. like they had more writing than I was kind of expecting. <laughs> I think know? the airplane sequence in particular, that when she's in the in the cabin with um uh Phil. Yeah. And he's literally telling her, describing to her that he's about to to, you know, use her for her sexuality. And he then later prostitutes her out and she, you know, she's she makes uh, I think, you know, many of the right choices. Yeah, you know she's it's, she's got some good. There's some some solid uh, writing for her in those sequences. Yeah, and just the fact that there was an actual relationship going on with uh, with Claudia's character, 
and mm-hmm. with uh, with Lonnie. Like I liked that Sammy and Lonnie kind of had this long distance relationship, and she was always looking for him to settle down. I thought that was actually I do too. And and there is a there is a sense of that sort of grace in complexity of human relationships, and I I get that. Um, and I think that complexity is at points here lost because you can't in on on one hand have a movie that shows sort of mature and strong relationships and clear lines, uh, you know, business, deline- uh, clearly deline- delineating business relationships and, you, you know, turn around and also say, okay, we're going to, you know, exploit you so clearly in the movie and not have a problem with it. Like there's, a, like the characters clearly don't have a problem with it. And so I, I just felt like it's a little bit of a, a two-faced um uh, as it's as we write around, we write very explicit scenes of strength, and then the scenes that the the rest of the film just, in terms of those relationships, tend to be sort of flippant. Well, and to that end, well, a few things. It's the seventies. Not that I'm yeah. excusing it, but you know, it was more <laughs> more obviously happening. Yeah, we can't change history. Yeah, right? that was then. Uh, Claudia was a uh, Playboy playmate, playmate, is my mm-hmm. understanding. And uh, so, and, and we know that it's something that Cronenberg uh, had used to his advantage in some of his other films, like the one we just yeah. talked about last week, The Rabbit. Um, That's right. But I do think in, con- and also it's a genre picture. And I think maybe that's as you know unfortunate as it may be, but in context of what the genre picture was, a car racing movie is gonna kind of emphasize some of that sort of stuff, especially the yeah. scene when Billy the Kid has the two women back into the trailer. Uh, you know, the most gratuitous nude uh, moment that we have in in anything that Cronenberg's done up to this point. Uh, Playmate of the Month, November 1969, and Playmate of the Year for 1970, Claudia Jennings. And this is a, a really kind of a sad little story because Claudia had been in a number of films largely exploitation types of films like the unholy rollers gator bait death sport the single girls those are the ones that imdb says she's most known for this was her last film because sadly um shortly after this film was released she actually died in a car accident so Uh. yeah pretty uh sad way to go after being in a film um about cars that was a real downer and it kind of soured my mood. You know, I, I honestly, I really liked the cast. I thought they yeah. that they cast it really well. I loved Don Franks as Elder um, and uh, Robert Haley the as PJ, the two guys who were kind of on the crew for uh, Lonnie. I really enjoyed um, George Buza and David Graham as Meatball and Stoner, the two guys who were on uh, uh, Gary Black's crew and, and Cedric Smith as Gary Black. A little side note, George Buza, who played Meatball, he was the voice of Beast in the X-Men animated series, which I think is kind of funny. And actually, I think as an as a, a an homage, they brought him in to, to be the trucker in X-Men. <laughs> so it's uh, kind of fun little bit of trivia. But, I, you know, I just I think that the characters were really interesting. The one that I wish that they did more with was Stoner, because I felt that there was this real interesting character arc started with Stoner, where we have that interesting moment where you can see the the crews and the drivers, they're kind of, you know, they're butting heads, but they're all still kind of friendly as you tend to be in this sort of world. And Stoner goes through the the effort of changing the tire on on Lonnie's truck 
only to, or I think is more Billy's car, actually, only to um, when Gary gets all pissy with Lonnie and says, take it off. They can call their guy and get it back. And I feel like, okay, Stoner is the guy who's, he is not going to kind of go down that dark road. Meatball is. And I was a little surprised that they didn't do something with Stoner's character arc because I felt like by the time Gary and Meatball were kind of wooed by Adamson to be kind of the new face of Fast Company, I really was expecting Stoner to kind of be that character who says, I'm not doing it. I'm going to work with the other guys. And it just it right. felt like they were setting that up and then it never went anywhere. Missed opportunity. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I felt like the transition for Meatball was strange. I felt like it was too easy for uh, Phil to infiltrate the uh, uh, blacksmith's team. I, it just felt too heavy handed, too easy. But yeah, it it's but, you know, Meatball was always set up as kind of the yeah. the bad guy. And so to that end, it's like it feels like it's easy because it's a genre picture and they didn't put effort into the elements of the script where you could have had a more complex well-rounded character it just they wrote a straight up genre character and so i'm like well they did it was easy they took the easy way out but they also set up gary as being a much more complex character and yes uh they they didn't take advantage of the setup of that character and they took the easy way out for him too they didn't make it an interesting departure for uh meatball to turn on gary they took gary from being a sophisticated and interesting driver and made him a simpleton by the end like when he's playing darts in the truck and he says wait what are you guys doing don't you worry about it gary like don't worry your pretty little head about it i found that ridiculous like why did you spend all this time making me kind of care about the relationship between gary and lonnie and his building the team uh when you're going to turn him into this to a simpleton by the end now obviously it's because he ends up making the ultimate sacrifice in the Fantasyland sequence at the end when he sacrifices his own life. And that, I think, is a strong moment for that character. But there's that middle area wandering narrative for me where I think they forgot who Gary was. Yeah, to a certain extent. I I, I agree and I disagree. I, I totally see that point. I think it's fair. I But I like that he makes that turn. I think it ended up working for me in a, in kind of that simpler way. Five stars with quibbles. <laughs> I will. I do have to point out Cedric Smith, who was uh, Gary Black, also was in X Men: The Animated Series. He played Professor Charles Xavier, along with other characters such as Red Skull and Zebediah Kilgrave and Purple Man. <gasps> oh, Purple Man! <laughs> oh, he's one of my favorites. So there you That's go. A, there you go. Awesome. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, camera, Mark Irwin behind the camera. Cronenberg talks about how this was where really where he ended up having a budget where he could actually have crew members who had been around the block a little bit, who had some experience, and he started getting a handle on, oh, this is what they're supposed to do. Mark Irwin, the DP, this is the first of six films that he will end up doing with Cronenberg. Ronald Sanders, the editor, the first of 16 films that he will end up doing with Cronenberg. The art director and production designer, Carol Spear, first of 14 films. Delphine White, the costume designer on this film, is the first of four films. Brian Day, the sound mixer, the first of eight films. And sound effects editor, Terry Burke, the first of six films. Cronenberg really kind of got this 
idea that, hey, you know, now that I'm working with these people, I want to keep working with them. I want to collaborate with them because they are an artist. I am an artist. Let's make art together. And I think that's actually really important. Even the actors. I mean, Nicholas Campbell as Billy the Kid. He's going to be back in the very next film, The Brood, along with a couple other films, The Dead Zone and Naked Lunch. So it's really kind of a, this is where Cronenberg really starts finding that family that is going to kind of work with him over the course of his career. And, you know, I have to say, like, you can feel that in the general world building of this film. I think the, like, it feels uh, very much in the world. I feel like I am a, a part of this. I feel like I'm in the truck. I feel like I'm on the racetrack. They capture what it feels like to be hot. Uh, they, you know, it, it looks great. It's, uh, I think the, you know, apart from the craziness of the editing at the end, I feel, I felt like it was largely cut together. Well, I think they, uh, you know, we've already talked about some of the truly interesting and innovative camera work that they do in this film to, to, uh, to, to celebrate the track and the world and the cars inside and out. Uh, so I, I think there is a lot to appreciate about the film ultimately, even if, you know, it ends up being, for me at least, not so much the sum of its parts. I have to say one of my favorite shots. In fact, I would argue uh, possibly my favorite shot of the entire film because I feel like it captured so perfectly just the world of this, I'm going to go out and say lower-end racing. You know, the tracks are not that great. Mm-hmm. It, everything's a little run down. The shot that just made this film for me and said, this is a filmmaker who's doing a little bit more than what a B-movie really needs to be. It's a shot from inside a car and you're looking through the windshield at kind of the just the track and everything going on outside of it and hanging down directly in front of the uh, the lens in on the windshield. You have three pairs of legs that just kind of you can say, OK, these are people who are sitting on their car just out there watching this stuff go. And here is this cool shot inside the car and you just see these feet. It was a perfect shot kind of depicting this world for me. I that uh, why is it that I can't get that single shot out of my head either like that when I think about this movie that's the first shot that comes to mind it it was I felt like I was in that car it it's exactly right yeah it was great I feel like that should be the Facebook banner for this show's week <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right uh, let's uh let's see do we miss anything in our notes that we were uh really really need to talk about or do we need to jump in quickly to the extensive sequels and remakes technically this would be the final one of a number of remakes except none of them are i just found it really funny (laughs) that when i was researching this this is the sixth film that is called fast company and i was like that's kind of odd and i looked at some of the synopses of the other ones and none of them really relate they're all kind of different it's just titled fast company the first one 1918 then 1924 1929 1938 i don't know why there was such a a of them in those 20 year period the 1953 all the way up to this one in 1979 what a weird thing i mean i that guess it's weird. it's kind of one of those titles it's like not that specific it can kind of reference kind of anything and here it is i just i need to get your commentary for um 
for on the music and the choice of music because there is part of me i think wow he is really like he's he's making a statement about the world that they're in and i, I think he's also you know there's something that is a, a bit of satire in there having a film a, a song that keeps coming back over and over again that uses the name of the movie in the lyrics of the song uh and that's a button um i found it wildly overused and uh i i it did not spark joy uh did you find yourself touched by the way they used the the song i didn't have any issues with it and there were actually like three songs i think it was three that i counted in the credits but it's funny because it is that sort of song where i feel like okay thought it was one song i didn't realize that i had heard three <laughs> songs over the course of the film uh but sure enough there were more than one um you know it it fits it's that it and i think you know he starts it off like i said earlier with one of these songs and that says this is this genre we're going to play pop songs in this movie and it's going to feel like the sort of film you're going to get when you're going to watch a car racing movie at the theater i felt like that this movie that would have been a perfect opening to like a car racing version of cabin in the woods you know like we're gonna make this kind of movie and in just a second something super surprising is gonna happen and it's gonna be gross and it's gonna take you in a totally new direction and that i think is the challenge that i ended up with this movie it never really took me in a new direction so yeah. uh did it do anything in award season was this a big big in the dragster uh filmmaking award circuit you know, if there were more drag racing award uh, shows for films, um, it might have. But unfortunately, it was just one of those movies that I don't think, uh, well, it, it we didn't really talk about it, but it struggled with its release, uh, definitely here in the States, a little bit in Canada. But the, the distribution company that actually had the rights to the film actually went into bankruptcy before the film could be released. And this film was held as collateral in in <laughs> court. And so no it was way. unable to actually get its U.S. release. And uh, it did have a release in Canada, but uh, it was uh, it really kind of stunk for the filmmakers um, because it just wasn't able to, it didn't turn into something where they could get their money back because of the situation that it fell into. So I, wow. I think uh, because of all that and everything else, and because it's just a car racing genre picture, I don't think it was something that was going to get anything. So yeah, it's bupkis as far as awards go. How to do uh, at the box office. Even with such a tonal shift, Cronenberg did still end up increasing his budget, working with a million dollars this time, uh, which is about three and a half million in today's dollars. Fast Company was released March 18, 1979, opposite California Dreaming and the China Syndrome, when it did finally have its limited release. Unfortunately, like Rabid last week, I couldn't find any information detailing how much the movie actually earned back. So that's largely what I got. But like I said, with the distribution company falling into bankruptcy, you know, it's, it just, it wasn't able to get much of a distribution. And so I don't think it made much. Um, it's one of those, I doubt there was any sign of return on the investment, but who's to know? Well, you know what that means, Andy, it's ripe for a remake. <laughs> I, uh, I think so. Easy pickings, people. I think it's time we, uh, rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see the, all of the movies that we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap flickchart, 
it should take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, Fast Company or one of our many Robin Hoods. It is Robin Hood 2010, Ridley Scott's version. Robin Hood 2010, please. I will say Robin Hood as well. Fast Company or another Robin Hood movie, Robin and Marion. Robin and Marion. Yeah, I'll say Robin huh. and Marion. Okay. Fast Company or Bull Durham. Definitely Bull Durham. <laughs> Bull Durham. <laughs> you love it. You love it. You know you do. <laughs> Fast Company or everyone's favorite Indiana Jones adventure, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> um, would I watch Indy before I slept to this? Yeah, I probably would. I'd watch Indy. I'm going to say first. Fast Company because... In context of what they're doing, I think they do a better job than what they did with Indiana Jones. Oh, man. All right, I'm going to give it to you. All right, Fast Company takes it. And the other movie explodes. <laughs> Fast Company or Christmas in Connecticut. Christmas oh, in a Connecticut. sweet little movie. I'll say Christmas yeah. in Connecticut. Fast Company or Battle for the Planet of the Apes. This is the last of the I'll, apes films. I, I, will, I will battle. I will battle with the apes. I, yeah. In, it's a rough one, but I would pick it first. And maybe it's just because I love the franchise more. Yeah, yeah. Fast Company or everyone's complete. This is such a complete opposite to a car racing movie. Wendy and Lucy. <laughs> Where's my lost dog? I will take uh, Fast Company, please. I'll take Wendy and Lucy. Really? I'm surprised, yeah, that you will take Fast Company. That's weird. <laughs> You know where it is on the chart right now. I am. Uh, I'm willing to go to the mat on this. All right, let's, let's do just it. See what happens. Let's just All right. see. All right, here we go. One, One two, two, three. three paper. Scissors. All right. And Lucy takes. I, it. You know, I have no feelings. <laughs> I have no feelings. I am numb to this choice. Fast Company or everyone's favorite disease thriller, Outbreak. Wow. I will take Outbreak, another genre movie that I think, yeah. you know, it's not my favorite, but I will too. it's doing an entertaining job with it. I will, too. That helicopter thing, though, man. <laughs> That's rough. There are a lot of rough things in that film. All right. Well, Fast Company landed in spot 395 on our chart, 395 out of 421. That puts it at about a 6%, which is pretty low. How did it do on yours? A lot better, actually. Uh, landed at 29.48 out of 42.13, which is actually about a 30%. How do you think it did on mine? I would say it's going to fare about as well as it did on our uh, group <laughs> chart. <laughs> it is. It landed at uh, 13.52 out of 14.10. That puts it at about a 4%. Uh, and once again, it's one of those where, according to the algorithm, I should be giving this no stars at letterbox.com slash the next reel. Um, but, you know, I feel like I've there are this movie is worse than the sum of its parts. And it's not a great film. And it was pretty boring through some of it and crazy at the end. And I'm still I still think I'll even give it a star. Wow. I'll give okay. it a star. One star, and I'm guessing no heart. Nah, I don't need to come back to this one. Okay. I liked it more than you did, as was clear from our conversation. It's not a five-star film, but it's it's a genre picture, and I think it's doing well for what it is. And so to that end, I'm giving it three stars and a heart. I'd watch it three again. Three stars. It's an easy film to watch and an easy film to enjoy. There's, there are a lot of movies 
that you have still to watch. So <laughs> I feel like functionally, practically, you and I have just made the same choice. I don't, I think you, you would, but you won't ever have the opportunity. I, no, but I, if, if it pops up, I'm not going to say no. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I think you will go eat crackers. You will just go. You'll say, hey, you know what's better than, than this movie? Some saltines. Well, saltines are pretty good. Well, where, so we finished this one. Where do we go from here? We are going to be um, jumping to Cronenberg's very next film, which came out the same year, I think, largely because of the distribution delay the Fast Company ended up having. We're going to be looking at The Brood, also from 1979. It will be an interesting uh, return to the body horror that we have already experienced with Cronenberg. This one has Oliver Reed, Samantha Egger, Art Hindle, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be seeing uh, uh, Nicholas Campbell again popping up here. Is this another one that you are familiar with? I have seen this one, and I actually have started my rewatch of it. So I'm excellent. Uh, it's a very interesting one. I'm looking forward to discussing this one with you next week. Very weird to say, Andy, but I, huh, I am looking forward to getting back into a little Cronenberg horror. <laughs> All right, everybody. When the movie ends, the conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Mm, Amazon didn't relate today. Meh. You know, meh, meh. Nah, not in not in the lower regions. Certainly not, not in, in the, the nether lower regions. regions. <laughs> not in the nethers. <laughs> uh, I I've got uh, I've got a five star. I think we went high because uh, yes. the the nethers were the nethers were barren. And uh, so I ended up with King of Things, who gave it a five star. Says it's an odd movie, but there is little in the drag racing genre for us. Fun to watch because of the vintage film and the driver's perspective on a run in a funny car. But if you're looking for Oscar performances, forget that. Though you do get to see Claudia Jennings before she lost her life later that year. Oh, it's a real up and down. It's a roller coaster, much like this movie isn't. Oh, you're so mean. You have one? I have one from Heather. Heather Florida, I guess, is her name or her moniker. She says five stars and says gift. Got this as a gift for my dad. It worked and he enjoyed it, I think. (laughs) That's a real Five stars. Five stars. (laughs) He said quibbles. I don't think she knows how to give ratings. No, she doesn't know what stars do. <laughs> hmm. There's a great movie somewhere that's short, five stars because of her review. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. 
and their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.